This podcast may contain f***ing swears that from this point on will not be f***ing bleeped. Hello, this is Catherine Loveday, Professor of Cognitive Neuroscience. I've examined the brains in front of me and I can confirm that Simon and Neil are indeed a pair of twats. Neil and Simon, Neil and Simon, what a pair of twats. Riding on the coattails of people who have talent. They are not afraid to look like a desperate double act. Neil and Simon, Neil and Simon, what a pair of twats. Hello, and welcome to Something Out of Nothing, a podcast exploring the nature of creativity. Attempting to discover what, if anything, creatives in different fields have in common. To do this, two friends with inquiring minds and a propensity to wang on at each other about creative stuff decided the best way would be to talk to other creatives and see if we can tease their secrets from them. He's Simon White, a writer and advertising type. And he is Neil Smith, an illustrator and graphic designer. Check out that for a bit of high-quality latte art, Simon. What do you reckon? Yeah, that's good, yeah. Quite classy. Got some love hearts, I've got a fern. Some might say that is a product of having too much time on your hands. Yeah, I know what you mean. They do seem quiet here today, but uh, but generally speaking, they're not. This is a busy spot, so we're in the yard, which is a, a really secluded, quite arty uh, little cafe. I've absolutely um, no idea it was here. That's how secluded it is. Yeah, it is secluded. It's got a secret door. Yeah, it's delightful. You need a handshake. Yeah, exactly. It's, a little, got, it's the touch of the speakeasy about yeah, it. Yeah, a little guy who opens a hatch. Mm. <laughs> no, there isn't. I've got, I, Simon, have got a book to illustrate. Um, view fairly shortly. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The um, Athena one. Yeah. So yeah. I fully intend to make this my um, this my go to hub for to, to 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 do the artwork for my book. Really? Yeah. I, what I, in the I, next I, few months? Yeah. Isn't it going to be absolutely bollock freezing? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you're sitting in the outside bits. I mean, there, oh, is, there, there is an indoor well. bit right, okay, okay. Uh, where I intend to do my artwork, drink good coffee, and uh, and eat sandwiches. Hmm. Sounds right, doesn't it? Yeah, it doesn't sound bad. It's like a quite an agreeable way to spend your day. Yeah, delightful here. I love it. Yeah, I don't know. It's a whole it's a whole new battleground <laughs> that they've created. Yeah. These enormous um what would you call them? What are they? Like sort of manufactured coffee chains. Oh. What, like what? What's a manufactured coffee chain? Well, you know what I mean? It's a market that didn't exist until they created it. Your Starbucks, your Costas, your Nero's. Yeah. You know, they didn't exist 20 years ago, and suddenly it's just like a, I don't know, it seems a bit like the mobile phone business that didn't exist, and now it's suddenly, we're all quite happy to chuck it 100 quid a month <laughs> without thinking twice about it. Spaff 100 quid a month <laughs> on, on some Fucking bullshit that we didn't... Don't, 5G and don't really need. flat whites. Yeah, well, no, I'm going to throw my... I'm happy to throw in my money at the yard on account of their uh, local, arty, organic, free-range, General locally sourced, general, arty spendedness. Right, okay. And I'll be coming here to be doing my creative, arty business over the next couple of months. Are they paying you for this? They're not, but I thought we could tag them on the thing. <laughs> <laughs> In the hope of a free latte. Not a free latte. <laughs> I love it. Uh, so, uh, conversation today with an old friend of yours, Simon. Mm. This is somebody I went to school with and uh, was friends with in London when we both had kids. We both had kids about, around about the same time. And I haven't really seen for ages. Um, but she's a lot brighter than me, always was, and um, went into academia and is now a 
what is it? Cognitive neuroscience? Is that yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Professor of cognitive neuroscience. I know she's a doctor as well. Okay. I don't, which is first? I, I think Professor Trump's doctor. Does it? I think so, yeah. Okay. Professor Lord Dr. Lady Catherine Loveday. Yeah, Loveday <laughs> of Westminster. <laughs> yes. Um, and she, so her, her work involves, um, you know, she lectures in cognitive neuroscience and also works with people who suffer and her specialisms, area of specialisms are memory and music. Yeah, which is amazing. And she is she is a regular, she's a go-to uh, for the BBC. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she's a professional science communicator. Um, yeah, she's one of those people they, they, they wheel in when they've got something that's relevant. We need a brain expert, yeah, get yeah, one. Exactly. But quite wide, quite wide, you know, she, I, I, I think you know, regular on Radio 4, but also, like, uh, I know, I know there's a, a lovely chap between her and Guy Garvey, the lead singer of Elbow. Is there? Uh, yeah, talking about uh, music and uh, memory on, on his uh, Six Music show. Yeah, hey, right. So, um, so it's great. And I'm very grateful for Catherine, who, uh, uh, who is such a professional, that she seems to be making sense and order of our podcast as we were going along. Absolutely. Uh, also your friend, uh, Mr Rutherford. Yes, that's right. Uh, I think uh, Catherine and Adam, Dr Rutherford, uh, uh, know each other and uh, collaborate a bit on the BBC, drink in the same pub and all of that kind of business. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Another doctor, but not a professor. Oh, Adam, if you're listening, I don't think you are. <laughs> uh, then I would say, I would say, Doctor Adam Rutherford. Right. Okay. Although I know he's just taken up a, he's just taken up a post at UCL, so I'm guessing he's going to be a professor. <gasps> <gasps> breaking news, not breaking news. Anyway, but yes, a professional science communicator. Uh, Catherine, and it really shows. I think Catherine at one point uh, is, uh, she's very polite about how shambolic our podcast is, mm. uh, but she also does say this is the most shambolic podcast she's ever been on. She does, uh, yeah. Which, which but I she's do- known me for a long time. I'm not surprised. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm surprised that she was surprised, is what I'm saying. <laughs> okay, that's good. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I took it as a badge of honour, really. Sort well, of, uh, yeah, yeah. Know, as, we, I, as I say during the podcast, it's good our, to take our podcast pride. is totally free jazz. We're the, you and I, I'd say, with other. Uh, with the Miles Davis and Herbie Hancock of, uh, of the <laughs> podcasting world. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yes, that's, yes, that's correct. <laughs> yes, Neil, you're correct. <laughs> yeah, it was a little bit free-ranging, but that's good, I think, in a good way. But she does her best, as you say, to bring it under some sort of uh, control yeah. and um, give it some sort of order. I think, I think the other thing is that, and as we said at the beginning, you know, we are a long way out of our comfort zones talking about neuroscience. Yes. Um, and she does a really terrific job of accommodating our, our sort of um, yeah, our our slightly naive questions. Slightly childish nonsense. <laughs> but, um, yeah. it was, so it came about really because I was thinking about it and, uh, you know, if there's anybody who can explain maybe uh, or have, give us some sort of insight into what's going on in your head when you are engaged in any kind of creative pursuit, then... Um, she would be a good person to be able to tell us about that. Yeah, definitely. I, I feel like this this is sort of this is slightly uh, reminds me of a film that you and I both love, uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and for me, I kind of I couldn't help but imagine uh, or, or think of the scene where um, where Jim Carrey is sort of uh, is, is strapped up to a a, a brain scanner. Yeah, uh, and um, Mark Ruffalo and Elijah Wood are showing him objects from his past, and then they're identifying the, the literal areas of the brain 
where so these memories occur and then they go through and erase them. Mm. And this conversation with Catherine, basically, I think one of the questions you almost ask is, can you, ident- can you spot, can you, can you spot an idea? Can you spot a creative process in the brain? Are yeah. there certain neurons that light up when you see something happening in the brain? So uh, we get into a bit of that. To which I think the answer was no, wasn't it? I don't give it away, Simon. Oh. <laughs> Um, I don't think it's that simple, basically. There's a lot of... I mean, I think it's a tendency of anyone, uh, any kind of layman in any kind of field to try and oversimplify stuff in order to oh, understand God. it. I'm the, absolutely the worst for that. Yeah, and I think we were probably guilty of that most of the way through this conversation. Yeah. But she's very good at um, agreeing with us and then gently telling us where we're wrong. Yeah. <laughs> she's a wonder. So what else do we talk about? Uh, we talk a bit about... Uh, we talk about your pool playing theory. Yeah, to which, which is not a theory, Neil. Well, that uh, is based on right. many, many years of hard scientific fact. Yeah, or well, hard pool playing and drinking beer. Mm. Uh, but anyway, the same. so we talk about your pool playing theory. We talk crucially about something that uh, that uh, is a bit of a game changer for us, I think, which is something uh, uh, called the default mode network. Um, yeah, it's wonderful. I mean, I think it's just putting a name to something that we're super familiar with, yeah. and it's nice. It's, it's lovely when something like that comes... You come across something like that, and you go, oh, that's a thing. That's yeah, a, that's a that's science right. thing. It's so pertinent to... Uh, it's so, so relevant and central to creative thinking. Mm. Um, to anyone who's engaged in the business of trying to have ideas, yeah, that's that it, right. is, it is definitely But But Catherine, give, Catherine gives it a name, the default mode network, which is uh, completely great. Um, um, what else do we talk about... Oh, we talk about improvising and how I thought it was amazing how how people that improvise for a living have a have uh, sort of different shaped brains. Different shaped brains, yeah. amazing. Um, it's mad. Oh, there's a oh, there's a live testing. Catherine tests us both for our creative abilities. Yeah, live. And, oh, uh, absolutely, it's like a game show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So oh, stay tuned really to see not. who wins. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, talk about unconscious creativity. Catherine's really into dreams mm. uh, and, and studying dreams, which is totally fascinating. Um, I've always assumed that dreams were basically nonsense and that people who claim to be able to read your dreams are, you know, charlatans in the, in the, the, of the same stripe as astrologists. Yeah, I got you. No, but, apparently um, not. Maybe apparently not. Apparently yeah. a window into our subconscious creativity, Simon. Yeah. So very much the opposite of that. Doesn't stop being nonsense, though, does it, Neil? No. <laughs> well, it's certainly true, judging by some of mine. Um, but, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, imagination. We talk about dreaming. We talk about... Uh, oh, we talk about the building blocks of creativity uh, um, and whether or not creativity improves with age. Mm, that's very interesting. And whether or not, um, you know, the idea that memory necessarily declines with age because memory is so closely linked mm. to anything creative you can't really um, make connections if you can't remember things yeah exactly so those parts of the brain are basically the same yeah uh, same parts of the same networks involved in those processes i'm probably doing it now and i oversimplifying yeah reductive yeah dumbing down time is what you're doing yeah the worst kind of dumbing down that's what you're doing yeah damn it but this is a quite a different chat for us because um, normally we'd be talking to um, someone else equally as woolly, <laughs> some other some other woolly arty type. Uh, yeah. Whereas in this chat we're talking to a professor who really knows her business. Yeah, uh, and uh, unfortunately yeah, is also uh, very good at telling other people about it because that's really her job. So um, 
she sorts his run out. Exactly. And um, our chaos is rendered into some sort of order. Yeah. <laughs> well played, Catherine. <laughs> uh, so this is us chatting to Professor Catherine Loveday. What the world needs now is another podcast from a couple of middle-aged fools. Right, there's a map for you, Simon. Map of the brain. Thanks, Neil. That's you've, only got the, you've only got the outside there. You haven't got any of the stuff that's going on inside, which is what we're probably more interested in. Well, exactly. But I thought that the bound to be a bit of biology might come up. Yeah. The relationship for me between the the, the big wibbly wobbly thing in your head <laughs> yeah. and thought and mm. you know it's it doesn't sit together in my head. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense, does it? But the well, you, can, you can't believe well, that one the, is a physical wibbly wobbly thing. The yeah, other, the other is abstract thought. Exactly. Which, uh, the, the, the physical object doesn't seem to relate to the you know our capability. Its capability, I should say. So the mismatch is that you can see something that looks fairly mundane, and this extraordinary stuff kind of emerges from it that is consciousness and everything that goes with consciousness. Yeah, exactly. And even unconsciousness. But even when you look at, I mean, it's even more so that like if you look at a liver and you go, okay, I, I'm aware of the function that that <coughs> performs. Yeah, and, and if I you believe chop it open, that it does. If you chop it open, you could see things actually. Yeah, there's happen. capillaries mm. and stuff, and you think, oh yeah, that makes sense. I see what you mean. Yeah, I still remember cutting rats up. And thinking exactly that, but yeah, you don't. You definitely don't get that with the brain. You're no, you don't. Right. You don't cut open you the brain and go, "Oh, there it is." There's there's that little thought. You can see it. I think. <laughs> I think yeah, there are getting sent like an email. There are things that do that that allow you to do that better. One is um, seeing people in the scanner. Yeah. Stuff happening while people are in the scanner, um, and the other is that watching people have brain surgery. So it's not necessarily turning things on; it's turning things off. It's looking right. at what happens when you switch something off. And you can do that just with magnets as well. No way. So explain, you, explain. TMS. So it's uh, test match special. The other TMS. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Are you recording? Yeah. <laughs> okay. This, Kath, this is our level, right? <laughs> this is what I meant about primary school neuroscience. Transcranial You're going to say TMS, and me and Simon are going to go test match special. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. You will not necessarily listen to anything stranger than this. Transcranial magnetic stimulation, it's a kind of thing that looks like a figure of eight. You hold it close to someone's head and um, you can disrupt their thinking or their speech or you can make parts of their body move or not move. Really? Mm. So basically the brain starts to make more sense as a thing when you can start to disrupt what it's doing. So with accuracy, turn off physical functions. Yeah. Can you turn off mental functions? So Yes, you can. And what you're going to love is that there is a study done, and I cannot guarantee how reliable it is and whether it's been replicated, but I love it so much I'm going to tell you about it anyway, where you can um, turn off areas of the brain and people can become infinitely more creative. Stop it. Um, And there is a kind of... um, neuropsychological parallel to that that means that you can see the same thing when people have brain damage so there are certain um, types of stroke that will impact on areas of the brain which then mean that people suddenly become creative in a way that they never were before and so you're effectively you've got two ways of doing the same thing one is a temporary thing and one is unfortunately permanent through two well i was doing what i uh, laughingly referred to as research uh, for our chat uh, <laughs> yeah. today and I found this uh, amazing well lots there's lots of amazing stories yeah. about the 
I, I remember uh, reading Oliver Sacks books. Yeah, they're a, great. When I was a kid, really mm. great. But there was one uh, fellow called Jason P- Padgett, mm-hmm. uh, who's who who who. Prior to his brain injury, his passions were, by his own admittance, girls and beer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he got assaulted outside a bar mm-hmm. uh, and became a mathematical genius. Yeah, so those stories hit the headlines and they're very exciting, but they don't happen that often. But I think when they do happen, what they do is they they kind of... I think they um, do something with that myth that we only use 10% of our brain because we absolutely don't only use 10% of our brain and the point is that you can sometimes take away some brain functions and people actually do better so there's there is an argument that what's happening is that the the normal functioning of the brain that allows us to do everything the way we kind of want to do it and the way we should do it and to have control of our lives and all those sorts of things sometimes you can lose some of that function and and the and get other functions almost that are covered up. So the way I sort of see it is almost that some functions are covered up by normal functioning, if you see what I mean. Um, and there are loads of examples of that. I mean, if you look at autism, it's a really good example of how um, you've obviously got some a brain that is functioning differently, but the difference in function gives that person a set of skills and a set of abilities that they that others don't have. Yeah feels like magic in some way yeah so again as part of my research I was uh, and kind of tying into what you're just saying there I I, I found myself a uh, a diagram of the brain and can I say how very beautiful it is and colorful thanks so much <laughs> uh, uh, so and I just thought I I could just do with knowing a little bit I'm so far basically I'm so far out of my depth mm-hmm. in this conversation despite being a scientific <laughs> illustrator uh, that I thought I printed something off and I, and so it's a little map of the brain and it's got frontal lobe, parietal lobe, cerebellum, brainstem, mm-hmm. temporal lobe and, and, and a little list underneath each header mm-hmm. of what functions those different mm. parts of the brain have. Mm-hmm. So I also sort of went through them and put a little cross uh, by all the oh. ones that I thought would relate to creativity. Okay. Oh, basically, I was going to say, what we don't have time for is basic brain <laughs> biology. <laughs> <laughs> Well, this is, got th- this is if to make... Is it, I'm basically making... Cast, you can cast. enroll downstairs. Yeah, so I'm, <laughs> I was just going to say we've might. got a 12-week course. Yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> lovely here. It's really lovely here. But I put a cross next to all of the elements yeah. uh, 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 that I thought related to creativity. Oh, that's interesting. And basically in every single area of the brain, yeah. there is a function, a key, you know, more than one yeah. uh, function that seems directly related to creativity. Mm. So it's, I, I kind of had this idea through reading a book called Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain. Oh. Do you know that one? I do. Do you I'd, want me to criticise it I'd imagine it it's not? problematic. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's good, because I was I was really sniffy about it. When you told me about it, I said, that's all nonsense, though, isn't it? The left-right yeah. brain stuff, isn't that what I mean? <laughs> Simon said, I said, oh, Simon, I've, I've, I've read this amazing book called Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain. Mm. So I went, yeah. that sounds like bollocks nearly. <laughs> <laughs> Simon's right, I'm afraid. <laughs> oh, <laughs> There is. It's not. Hurrah! You can. You can find. You can find nuggets of truth in there. But it's. It. The. The concept of right and left side of the brain has been so removed from the reality. And. And essentially, the left and right side of the brain work together all the time anyway. So unless you're looking at people who've got split brain, which we do have patients who've had split brain, and then you can see a little bit more what either side is doing. You, you can never look at one of them in isolation anyway. There are there are definitely things that one side of the brain does better or faster than the other, 
but it changes from person to person and it changes according to circumstances. And really, in relation to what you were just saying, the key thing is that all the parts of the brain work together. And I think increasingly over time, what I've become more interested in is not this bit does this and this bit does this and this bit does that, but it's how they interrelate and how they work together because that's the bit that can get disrupted. Simply changing the brain chemistry is going to change not really what any one part of the brain is doing, but how the traffic gets between them and how they communicate. So have a glass of wine, a glass of beer, um, smoke a cigarette, anything like that immediately starts to change the chemistry of the brain, which means that you're getting different connections between different areas, which is going to influence every aspect of our sort of experience and thinking and behaviour. Amazing. So this leads on to another question I had. Mm. Uh, which felt very natural to me as somebody mm. that grew up with slightly hippie parents. Yeah. Uh, you know, my dad's record collection is a thing of wonder. Yes. But basically, as I got older, I realised that all of these records that I loved and he loved mm. were basically made under the influence of sort of psychedelic drugs. Yeah. yeah. That's exactly where I was going to go. I saw that Danish film recently, the um, Another Round, it's called. I haven't seen it. Um, it doesn't really matter. It won loads of, it won the um, non-English language Oscar, I think. And it's a Mads Mikkelsen, and the, the basic idea of it is that the that we're born with a blood alcohol level that's slightly too low, so they were trying to up it, which is a really right. interesting concept. But then it descends yeah. into sort of rather depressing alcoholism and like broken families and stuff. So mm. it's best to stop watching it after half an hour. <laughs> okay. But, but um, it is a really interesting idea, and I've the same question. I think is that like I'm a, I'm a pool player, love playing pool. There is a definite moment about yeah. one and a half to two and a half pints <laughs> when you are at your best. And you're, yeah. it's probably because you're slightly more relaxed and, you know, the, I don't know, everything feels like it's flowing. Yeah. And then it doesn't last for very long. Whether you stop drinking or not, mm. it will stop. But there is a moment where you're like, this is, I've hit the golden patch. <laughs> you're right. And I find this exactly the same spot for playing darts as well. I've noticed yeah. that pool and darts are pretty much equivalent there's, in terms of blood alcohol level. Maybe there's, it's not a coincidence that they're pub games. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It doesn't last long, though, as you say, does it? You think, right, that's it, I'm on to it now. Yeah. and then. But there, that is the point, actually. What you've just said is exactly the point. So for everything we do, there's going to be an optimum level of everything. So there's going to be an optimum level of how awake and asleep you are. There's going to be an optimum level of how much you're concentrating and focused. But as, as you know, brain chemistry as well. So mm. there, is, there, is, there are sweet spots for everything. Could you say there are sweet spots for creativity or does creativity, is that too woolly? So I think what I would say about creativity is that there is probably, I think there are optimum states you can be in terms of your consciousness. So so in a sense, what I would argue possibly is that we are more creative in certain conscious states. And really what I'm saying is when certain networks, brain networks are online. So we kind of broadly speaking, we can kind of switch between two networks so we have permanent networks that are set up and then we have kind of temporary networks that are set up. They're almost like, imagine pulling together a sort of football team to do this particular game and then a different team to do that particular game. And you might have different players one one uh, time and then a sort of slightly different set of players depending on the, the, the game you're going to play. Courses for courses. Basically, and that's exactly what's going on with the brain. Would you have a set of players who were slightly drunk? Uh, maybe the, the, <laughs> the pint and a half, two pints to come on for the perfect sweet spot moment. <laughs> Uh, but uh, yeah, so I think that um, that the the point is that we've got these kind of temporary associations and networks that are set up, but we also have these two broad states. So we have the kind of focused, concentrating state, and then we have what's called the default mode network. So I don't know if you've heard of the default mode network, but it's 
a really, I'm just fascinated by it. It's the most intriguing discovery, I think, in the last kind of 15 years or so of neuroscience. And it's this idea that when the brain is, when we're not actively engaged and focused and concentrating on something, we go into this default mode. And it's a very specific um, network in the brain that involves some of those structures there, the frontal lobe and parietal lobe and so on. And we have this kind of little network and it allows us to daydream and mind wander. And it's utterly crucial because we we relentlessly do it all the time. So we can be having a, concent, a concentrated conversation and I can think you're focused and listening to me, but I might say one word, just one word that suddenly sends you off. Yeah. And that that sending you off somewhere is really important part of who we are and how we live and what we do and the decisions we make. And the, the real trick with life is being able to get that balance right. So it's being able to get focus and concentrate and be in the moment and do what you need to do at a particular time, but then to let go and allow this mind wandering to happen at other times. So it really it is essentially a time travel. That's what I think of it as. So, um, mm. so I don't think anyone realises how much time they spend in the past and the future until that changes. So I work with people whose default mode network doesn't work. People who have amnesia, people who have dementia, and um, we know it's also disrupted in, in other conditions, some psychiatric conditions as well. And if you no longer have that mind-wandering capacity, you cannot, you can't envisage your future. And what you don't recognise is that when you're, if, when you go to leave this building, or when I go to leave this building, I might decide to take a particular route out of here because I don't want to bump into somebody who is going to, have an awkward conversation with me. But I only know that because I've already walked out of the building. In my mind, I've walked out of the building, I've bumped into them, I've had yeah. that conversation, I've thought, I don't want to do it. You imagine the possibility, <laughs> and even subconsciously even, you've got, I want to go the other way. Yeah, and yeah. You, you haven't, you haven't, so we're doing that absolutely all the time, we're yeah. continually, so when you talk about creativity, we're continually creating an imagined future and we're creating alternative imagined futures. And we sort of describe it in our work as updating the self, so you're continually updating the self, you're referring back to stuff that's happened, forward to things that might happen, and you're using that to create your goals and decide on your actions and so on. It also, this, the default no, mode network makes a lot of sense to me. That is, I think that is a lot of how creativity works. Yeah. It is in my head, certainly, in that I've, I remember instances of being in a briefing for a job and somebody saying something and I wander off in your head mm. and like within a minute, and they're still talking and I'm going, I've cracked it, I think I know what I'm doing yeah. now. And you know, they, they could stop now, yeah. but you don't. Obviously, you carry on, but there's a sort of I, I can see what this needs to be, yeah, because you've wandered off exactly and, and stopped listening to them. And and as a culture, we utterly stop this. You know, we tell kids off for daydreaming yeah. all the time. Stop daydreaming. Yeah, start daydreaming. That should start be. daydreaming. Print that T-shirt or get control of when you're daydreaming and when you're not daydreaming. Just get me close. I've his, got Neil's got his hand up. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Hang on a minute. Well, this is this is what it is. I've got. <clears throat> I have got two questions. Neil's got his hand up, but I'm going to go first anyway. Yes, I'm going to go first anyway. I've got two questions, and we're really close to one. Pulling rank. So can I do it? Yeah. You carried the heaviest bags. Fine. All right, fine. But Neil's got about 840 questions, and he's going to ask about 12. I've only got two, and we're really close to one of them, which is... So the main thing I wanted to come out from today with, if we can get some idea from you about what happens in your head when you have an idea, and can you see it? You know, you were talking about MRIs and all that kind mm -hmm. of stuff. Is it, are there certain bits, you know, Neil's with his brain map and everything and all the bits that 
parts of the brain that have you know relevance to creativity can you see which bits fire and which bits get excited all that kind of stuff so the thing with brain imaging science is that it's never exact but the the likely answer is yes so there are different strategies you can use so you can use um something like mri and fmri which is looking at which parts of the brain are active but it's quite a sort of the time scale is not great now when you have an aha moment you need you literally need split second moments to, to judge it. Mm. So the better te- te- technique to use for that is something called EEG, which is picking up sort of literally spikes of neuronal activity. So big spikes of activity. So you could literally spot an idea yes. on, a, on, a, on a printout, yeah. on, a, on a readout. Would you be able to tell if it was a musical idea or a story idea? No. Or a good idea? Oh, yeah, <laughs> what do you mean? I'm telling it was any good. <laughs> that's, a, that's a much better question. <laughs> Yeah, so this is the thing that people... Because it's actually quite hard. The problem with science is you want to try and make things as controlled as possible. And it's actually quite hard to get people into a situation where they're going to have that aha moment. But that's what I'm talking I'm talking about insight, that moment of, yes. of I've got it now. And and the, the big argument, really, in trying to do the research is, um, is that... Is that somebody who's working through it logically and just reached the point of getting the right answer and has felt really pleased with themselves and all you're seeing is an emotional response? Mm. Or is there an actual jump that is occurring in in your unconscious mind, which means that you, out of the blue, feel like you've suddenly got it? And on balance, they, not me, because I don't do this research, but researchers have seemed to have pinned down this moment of insight and can see the spike of activity. The problem with EEGs is that they are... Um, not as good at, at locating where it happens. So you can kind of tell roughly where on the cortex it is. So we, you, it's always a trade-off. You can get really split-second timings with EEG, but you can't localise as much. Um, right. So it's harder to localise. And the other thing with EEGs is you're not picking up what's going on further in on in the brain. You're only picking up what's going on around the outside the cortex. So I think we're still quite a long way from really saying this is exactly where it happens. But what I can say is that there's reasonably good evidence that you can spot that moment and you could therefore and nowadays there's a lot of stuff is done through sort of machine learning and stuff so that you can get a computer to identify that kind of spike as an idea so you could have like a so if you hooked up a writer's room Mm -hmm. uh, famously writer's rooms are full of what ifs yeah what if they did that Mm. no that's no good you presumably you could see you could match up the good idea, the one that everyone agrees on, with the, with the scan. Yeah, I would say, from a practical point of view, we're a little away from being able to do that. But in principle, there's no reason why we Gosh, shouldn't be able amazing. to use the evidence to do that. It'd be, it'd be really difficult to tell if what you were tracking, though, was the idea or the enjoyment that everybody gets from when stuff's going well. So well, that that's what they've tried to do. And they have used methods of trying to separate those things out. So you're not just getting the emotional response of that feels good, but you are actually seeing that jump. But it's it's really hard science to do. God, I don't doubt it. So this feels to me like we're slightly in the realms of a bit of bi- biology. Mm-hmm. So there's all these neural networks. Uh, and this we've already established that the right side, left side thing is bollocks. It's not entirely bollocks, but it's it's massively misused, especially when it comes to creativity. I think it's a classic oversimplification. Yeah. I think, uh, 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 um, anyway, but so those those neural networks that mm. are lighting up mm. uh, when you're measuring them, are they? Are they, are they is, is it like a mishmash? Is it a, a crisscross of neurons? Gosh. Um, or, or are there specific 
neural pathways. Yes, there are. Yeah, that, so that the, relate to specific things. Yeah, there are very there are very much clear pathways. And so what I'm I suppose if you think about the brain a little bit like imagining the UK and you've got loads of tiny little lanes and then you've got bigger roads and then you've got motorways and you've got big junctions between things. So you can think of the, the brain in a really similar way. So any any of these connections can fire. And what is kind of extraordinary is that it doesn't go wrong more often because Oh, road works. Yeah, yeah. Well, if you think about it, every time a neuron fires, so I don't know if this is too. I don't know if this is going into too much detail, but I do find it so interesting that a neuron is on or off. It either fires or it doesn't fire. But every single neuron in the brain is going to be is going to have a couple of hundred thousand other signals coming into it, and and or neurons connected to it, which may or may not be firing at any given time. And then that is one of that's feed, you know, one of 100,000 feeding the next one in the chain. So it's just extraordinary that it is so organized and doesn't go wrong more often. Um, But in answer to your question, we are looking, I think, at broad networks. So there's lots of smaller things. So there's some really interesting research that shows, for example, in um, autism, you see more of those local networks and less of those, the kind of motorway type networks. So what you get is this very detailed processing. <coughs> that makes so much sense, doesn't it? As a, as a metaphor, that's, mm. that, that seems absolutely spot on. That's, you've just explained how, what's, what, what happens in autism. Mm. I don't know if that, I mean, does that help to solve it? Does it help to treat it? I think it helps to understand it because once you recognise that, that in a sense you're getting much less traffic between one part of, your perceived experience or sensed experience in another part and that and yet you can do one thing really really well yeah and it's but, quite often a creative thing as well isn't it with yeah. autism you get like kids who are sort of i don't know uh, you know music is one isn't it and art and stuff there where they're so focused and in on it mm. that uh they, they concentrate for huge periods of time about that one thing yeah but don't have you know lack I don't know whatever else social skills or whatever. Yeah, and and even like a really simple example of that is is face recognition. So to recognise a face, we have to see the whole. We're actually really rubbish as humans at recognising a face by one feature because it's a configural thing. It's how everything relates to each other. And actually, people with autism are typically quite bad at face recognition because you have to be able to process all of those things in relation to each other. Um, so so. In terms of your question about creativity, I think the key thing is that we we know more about those broader big networks. So we know more about the which kind of connections are important. So there's, for example, some really I'm particularly interested in in music and music neuroscience. And there's some really interesting stuff around improvisation. And you can kind of see that when people are improvising, that that certain areas of the brain are turned off and others are kind of allowed free, if you like. And it's all to do with the sort of control. So the front part of the brain, which is that nice red bit on both of your pictures there. The frontal lobe. The frontal lobe. Come on, Kevin. So the, the frontal lobe is, is about a third of the brain, but the prefrontal cortex is the kind of, is the bit around that and it's the bit right at the front. And that's kind of the control centre for our brain. And so a lot of it is about what that is doing. So if you when we go to sleep... For example, because I would say that dreams are the ultimate creative act. We all do it. We're all ridiculously creative. We come up with the most ridiculous dreams every night. So everyone is capable of creativity because everyone dreams. They're not very good, though, are they, quite often? 
Um, I mean, you see, now you're going down a whole different route as whether, whether the create. See, I would argue that by doing that, you are immediately saying that you're doing that thing that I was talking about earlier, which is kind of judging people for their creative output. My, my dreams. <laughs> when, you, when you go back to it and you go, that, yeah, that's that's just completely unbelievable. Yeah, no one's going to buy that. But surely the whole point, I mean, you're the creatives, but surely the whole point of creativity is to generate, you know, a thousand ideas so that you can can produce one good sure, one. Oh, yeah, yeah. So what dreams are doing is giving you a thousand options, mm. most of which are shit. I always <laughs> think of it as sort of mental exhaust dreams. Is that is that completely... Is that, a, is that a wrong way to think of it? Yeah, well, I don't know. I think they, I, uh, and there's a reasonably good research to show that dreams are, have a very specific function, a really important function. And there's there's lots of different theories around it, really. But I think in terms of creativity, there's masses of, of evidence that shows REM sleep is specifically linked to creative output. Right. So you can actually do tests where you give people a, essentially a creative task to do before they go to bed and you can do do the same thing with people at the beginning of the day you can test them both 12 hours later and you can see that um essentially it's about making connections so you ask people to and they're very good at making the straightforward connections but they don't start seeing the longer range bigger connections until they've had a bit of time out Mm. and if you have 12 hours of a busy day, you'll still do better on it at the end of the day than you would without having had those 12 hours. But if you have 12 hours sleep, you do much, much better. And interestingly, when you look at the amount of REM sleep people have, the that correlates directly with how much better people are at making those connections. And, and, and so I would argue that that's a big cornerstone for creativity is being able to make these connections. I think the other thing about creative process that, that the kind of research backs up is this idea of 90% perspiration and 10% inspiration yeah. because you you do have to put the work in and that's what most of the evidence shows and, and my, my knowledge is mostly around or more around the kind of music creativity and musical composition but it it's all of those things. It's being a, the amount of work and listening that people have to do and the amount of knowledge they have to then have those moments of inspiration and to, to let the incubation work. But for me, the thing that is untouchable and the thing that is really hard to both study and understand is the incubation period. Mm. It's that stuff that goes on below the level of consciousness. And I think the closest we get to it is is kind of dreams because dreams, we, we can kind of grasp some of what happens in dreams and we can sometimes go, I dreamt about that. And, you know, the, the famous examples of the benzene ring and, and the scientists um, who imagined it as, as snakes sort of swirling in a circle and then woke up and goes, I know how those those molecules are connected now. And all sorts of, do you not know that one? No, no. Ke- Kekali, I think his name was. And he was trying to understand how on earth can this chemical behave in this particular way? And then he dreamt, had this dream of snakes uh, all connected head to toe swirling around in a circle and he suddenly realized that it was this thing the benzene ring and that these carbon atoms were connected in a very particular way right. and that explained everything about how they so he'd had this dream which was nothing to do with chemicals but it became became an analogy that allowed allowed him His to subconscious see subconscious was trying to tell him something so this feels like abstract thought yeah um and so your your feeling is that um humans uh are at their most effective in in coming up with abstract thoughts or abstract connections like that mm. one when you're asleep. No, I don't think they are. I think or they're when better when they're actually. I think dreaming is the closest we can get to any insight to it. So I think dreaming is a state of consciousness that is 
a level above being unconscious of something. So we are, our brains are doing masses of unconscious stuff that we just don't access, we don't know is happening. Um, but it's utterly vital to how we function. Um, you know, in a very simple in a very simple way, simply just being able to kind of sit in this chair. I'm not continually having to tell my muscles what to do, but in every way, our um, sort of unconscious memories, everything. Um, and we can't access that. But but for me, sleep is a, is a stage between the two because we can sometimes access it. We can sometimes remember it. And it is a, a type of conscious thought, but it's the closest we can get in my mind, in my opinion, to accessing the what's happening when we're actually unconscious. And there's, um, I hope I'm not going to bore you with these, but there's a couple of really brilliant studies that really demonstrate, and they're back in the 80s, but they demonstrate this incubation and this stuff that's going on at an unconscious level. I think that this incubation thing mm. is just so pertinent to every mm. creative person. Definitely. This, this feels like, you know, when you mentioned earlier, we were talking about default network mode, and you said, you know, you'll be in a meeting, someone's giving you a brief or there's somebody yeah. talking, and you drift off. And you go, I've got it. You could stop talking now. Yeah. yeah. I get this. So you don't I, say that. Yeah. <laughs> make you come on. Yeah, yeah because then you get fired. <laughs> uh, but uh, but I, I, I remember, you know, we were talking about running. You're a running yeah, evangelist. Yeah. Um, when I first started having to do workshops yeah. uh, and get out of my uh, get out of my uh, comfort zone and of, 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 of doing my illustration and graphic design in my, my office, mm. I was running at the time. And I would I would come mm. back from my hours run mm. and literally have to run to grab a pencil yeah. and paper. It happens to uh, me all the when, time when I get in, and I'd just be scribbling furiously yeah. Yeah. all this stuff that I that had just percolated. Yeah, it, you know, it'd been knocking around my head, um, all these thoughts, all these problems that yeah. I little creative problems that I needed to solve, and they just came just I know, you know flowing I have, out. I have exactly, and a lot of them were yeah. rubbish. Yeah, I have exactly the same experience. And and actually what is frustrating for me is a bit like dreams that half of them have gone by the time I by the time I actually do get home. I would, totally. I was going to say that's exactly what happens to me. You've, by the time I found a pen, I've forgotten why I wanted the pen. Oh, it's, it, I, I honestly, if I could grab um, you know, everything that occurs to me while I'm running... And uh, I say running in the loosest possible sense. Like it's it's a little bit more than a walk. <laughs> yeah. But it's. But an, I, I get the same thing out with the dog. Right. Walking. So yeah. That, yeah. I mean, I'm, oh, I've, I need to write that down. I haven't brought my phone with me, and then it's gone. But can I posit a point that it's because you haven't got your phone with you that you've had your idea? Oh yeah, quite possibly. Because yeah. that's the whole point. You your default. Every time you are, even if you're scrolling through this phone and looking. Oh, it's at, it's robbing your attention. Definitely. It's, it's that's keeping your default mode network from being active. So your default mode network comes online when you're not focused and concentrating on stuff. And for me, when I'm running. You know, about 50% of the time, I'm just thinking, God, I hate this. It really hurts. And then the other 50% of the time, my mind is is wandering all over the place. Mm. And um, even when I'm listening to music and even when I'm listening to podcasts, sorry, <laughs> my mind can <laughs> I'm wander. I'm not really listening. But, <laughs> but I would argue that that is in the same way that I think kids in school should be allowed and encouraged to, to mind wander. I mean, there has to be a time when they stop what they're doing and focus and write things down and some output and some action. But we shouldn't be we shouldn't be discouraging kids from mind wandering any more than we should be discouraging um, kids from um, you know doing ideas that are rubbish. So I was joking about your your dreams thing earlier on, but actually there's a serious point there, which is 
when you look at what happens developmentally with kids learning music, there's this very interesting trajectory that happens with both dance and song, which is that to start with, kids are unbelievably good at being spontaneous. They'll, they'll make spontaneous movements, they'll dance, they'll sing spontaneous songs that are really completely unusual and creative and so on. And then what happens is by the time they reach to five, that spontaneity has almost been replaced entirely by mimicry. So what happens is a, car, a child will sort of start to sing a song and someone will join in with them and sort of go, it goes like this. And we're not conscious that we're doing it, but we are teaching children to mimic and to copy um, and not to be spontaneous. And that that's a Western culture thing. I'm not saying that that happens in other places. Um, so I, uh, and, and this has a very serious element to it in that, um, I don't know if you understand the concept of brain plasticity, but it is really key here because when you talk about one person being more or less creative... Catherine, I know exactly what you're talking about, but Simon might not. So why don't you, uh, why <laughs> okay. don't you, why don't you explain brain plasticity <laughs> yeah, to explain us? Explain it to me. Yeah. Just, just so, for Simon. So brain plasticity is, is a very simple concept, which is that the brain is malleable and adaptive and physically changes in response to your environment and, and what you see and feel and beha- behave and are exposed to. So, so it's physically... Physically. Malleable, not metaphorically. No, 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 physically. So otherwise how? Because it's not magic. It's not magic that when you walk out of here, you can remember some of this conversation. You can remember it because literally molecules in your brain have changed as a result of this experience. Mm. And it's kind of mind-blowing. Kind of, exactly. It is mind-blowing. until an inadequate phrase, but <laughs> yes. It is, <laughs> is mind-blowing, but it literally physically remoulds and adapts itself. So, so there are... You might build new connections in your brain. Um, you might feel faster, better connections in your brain. You will get rid of neurons that you're not using. Um, we will grow in some places new neurons in certain areas of the brain. So we can, our brain will stop using neurons and get rid of connections it doesn't need. That's really interesting because that makes me think that um, uh, uh, creativity could be like a muscle. Like the more you put yourself in situations whereby you have to be creative, that, that your your brain will become uh, uh, like a muscle, more more powerful. That's more- and that's exactly where I'm going with it. So what I'm saying is that you know that's that's perfectly perfectly described though because that's what I'm saying is happening with with children. So if you're in a situation where you are d- discouraging. Um, creative output regardless of you know the stages we were talking about earlier you want people to produce a hundred different sort of examples of something and and for one of those to be right but if they can't produce the hundred the 99 that are wrong and if every time they produce the wrong one they get frowned on or they get told it's not quite right or someone laughs at them then that's what kills it isn't it that is is what kills it it's the laughing at it that the you know, if they once they get it into their head that they're not very good at it, then they stop even bothering. Yeah. And it happens really young. You can see it with, and you know, trying to encourage kids that it's okay to be rubbish at it is is not. It just doesn't work. No, because because culture and society is so is so wrapped around everything having to be right, and and we should be encouraging and developing the the experimentation and not worrying too much about what the output is and so going back to what you were saying and this concept of neuroplasticity this is completely observable with neuroimaging so you can take um, musicians who have been improvising for 20 years and you will see 
different networks in their yeah. brain. So can you look at a picture of a brain and go, this guy is a yeah. professional creative? Yeah, I I couldn't, but there is there, there is the data can. is out there to show what an improviser, uh, uh, someone who's improvised for twenty years, looks like compared to someone who's just played exactly the same amount of stuff but has not been an improviser. And like, and as I said earlier on, when people are in the scanner and they're improvising, you can see certain networks come on and offline. You can see the mind-wandering network come online and you can see the control network sitting back and kind of allowing allowing that stuff to happen. So you, you need parts of this controlled prefrontal cortex to sit back and, and allow that to happen. Can I jump back? Since this podcast seems to jump all over the place anyway, which yeah. I will kind of put down to it being a really strongly creative moment. Sure, thanks. Um, yeah, this is this is free jazz. This is this is uh, <laughs> this is Miles Davis. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to go. Let's say that. So I just when we were talking about the creative act earlier on and and how you measure it and also so I was going to give you an example of something that we do in a lab if we want to measure how creative somebody is and what we might be looking at brain activity and how we because I I have to measure people's brain functions for all sorts of clinical reasons and one thing I might look at is is people's creative output so one of the things we might get people to do is that so I thought I'd just try it Mm. on you is to say you have to come up with as many uses for a brick as possible that are not the obvious one of building a house so go so like doorstop paperweight that sort of thing yeah okay um what else? Simon's winning so far. Yeah, that's all right. You could use it as a weight for a... I'm, I'm imagining it's got a rope tied around it and you've chucked it off, of, off a, like an anchor. Okay, that's sort good. Of thing, yeah. Some sort of... Could, could you throw it to one another? Could it be like a toy? Whoa. I mean, you'd need to be quite good high at catching st- High stakes. It. Yeah, very high stakes. <laughs> <laughs> so the, we do things like that with button and brick and shoe and various things like that. And there are some people who literally cannot come up with anything and who get... So this is yeah, for I'm me... I'm struggling a bit, actually, which is irritating. <laughs> Yeah, isn't it? I think you're just on yeah, the spot. Yeah, you're quite good at it. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you're lucky because normally you. you'd give people <laughs> three or five minutes to to kind of come up with stuff, and people do. So, but but there's so just watching people do that task as my job as a kind of psychologist or neuropsychologist is to go. Why can some people do that and some people kind of go, oh, and there's so many things. There's a, there's the kind of mental block, isn't there? There's the oh, God, I've got to come up with something. I've got to come up. With, someone's watching me, mm. and then there's the can you have that diversity of ideas? So some people are really fixed and and just don't have the capacity to think outside of the very concrete. So you have to be able to abstract from this is what I usually use it for to these are the different ways that I could use it. There's also the social thing, isn't there? I don't I don't want I might have had lots of ideas, but I didn't want to save them just in case I sounded yeah, silly. Totally. There that's you go. The, so that comes back to this, which is what happened. But that yeah. comes back to the same thing. <laughs> so arguably, your job forces you to do that kind of brick experiment all the time so you'll so. you'll probably don't mind saying things that might sound might stupid rubbish. but there's a the brainstorm rule is that there's there's no bad ideas you've but got, which you've, is perfect you've got to keep saying them even if they're rubbish but, but that it, it is doesn't not... it doesn't actually work like that because because every book especially yeah. agencies are like schools you know they're, they're they're worse than schools people are more catty if anything mm. so that you will be being secretly judged but you you just everyone sort of accepts that okay well this, those are the, that's what everyone says and we all know it's going to but there's still there's still a sort of a, like a kind of competition in a way, an informal one about okay, as, is that any good? Are they how useful are these people? Mm. So when it comes back to individual differences in creativity, these are the questions I would ask myself. I would say like let's just start with a really simple task like that. What are the things that are going to make people better or worse at that task? One of them is 
um, is going to be simply, you know, how much time they've spent with a brick in their life, for example. So what, what their history is. But there's going to be... How much you know be, about bricks? Yeah, how much you know about <laughs> bricks. Um, but, but there's all these other things about what, what experience people have had of being laughed at for coming up with stupid ideas, yeah. how confident they are, um, how fast their brain processes things, um, whether they are a divergent versus convergent thinker. So a convergent thinker is someone who's really good at kind of doing a focused answer to something. A divergent thinker is someone who can... Right. sort of spread their yeah. brain in lots of different directions because I feel I'd like, I'd like I'd need half an hour to go to, to have a little wander about think about the bricks mm. so well, maybe I'd, prob- I'd probably write a, lo- and then write, write a long a, list with a notebook full yeah, exactly <laughs> yeah, you well, would, yeah. exactly so but, this is my this is my notebook for today it's just <laughs> you know it's just reams of it but if you take this back to the brain stuff so it just give you a really concrete example when when a baby learns to walk um, so apparently I was quite late walking, but we had a sort of pebble dash um, thing, which meant I couldn't get over to where something nice was at the other end of the garden if I didn't get up on my feet and walk. And, but basically, when you start to get up and walk, what happens is that you fall over. So a, t- a baby has to kind of keep doing that. He has to keep falling over many, many times or wobbling until they get it right. Mm. And what you're doing then is you are strengthening the neural pathways in the brain that that are rewarded. So if you, the reward is staying upright. Yeah. Um, and not and 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 the punishment is falling over if you like. So so if you fall over, your brain goes, mm, I'm not doing that one again. And if you stay upright, strengthen that pathway. So what you're doing every time you're rewarded or you get some sense of satisfaction from something, you are continuing to do that thing and exercise those pathways. So in the brick scenario, if you give this sort of topic to, you know, half a load of kids and you judge every single thing and another half and you say every single thing they say, that's great, that's great, that's great, really brilliant, then you are going to get better creativity in the longer term from those from those other kids. Right, I see what you're saying. So like reinforcement is a big part of it yeah that's what we ought to be doing with children i think so and sorry one last thing because it is an important caveat is that you should still be distinguishing between a good idea and a bad idea so you have to encourage but children will know so there's this evidence that shows if you just say oh that's brilliant to everything children do well there's no overpraising they they don't get it so you need intermittent reward and you yeah Mm. but that's that's a social you know, like I notice it whenever whenever I've been in in classrooms, some of the really good teachers mm. ask a question to the class and get five wrong answers, mm. but respond to those wrong answers in such a positive way, mm. but, yeah. but at the same time saying that's wrong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're all wrong, but they say no, that's a great try. <laughs> We're nearly there. You know, uh, and, and those social those social forming of people's willingness to be creative feels like such a big factor to me yeah and i do you know i think this is why computer gaming is i i i think that it's it's kind of maligned too much because actually computer gaming is a place where children can safely experiment and where they get exactly the right level exactly where you get exactly the right level of feedback you know you you get intermittent reward you get a degree of reward for getting so far, but you will also make mistakes and get things wrong, but there's no one there to judge you. And as human beings, we do not do well with being judged. I mean, if I want to stress someone out and measure their cortisol levels, I'll bring them into this lab here and I will get three people to sit and watch and make a speech. And that's how we can stress people out. Social evaluation is the most stressful thing you can do to somebody. So if you're evaluating someone's performance in a negative judgmental way all the time they're very quickly going to stop doing it 
Mm. Yeah, absolutely. That, I mean, that, that is it's so fundamental to us, isn't it? That that sort of unconscious need for approval, mm. even from people we don't know. You don't want to look like an idiot. But from an evolutionary point of view, that's because we survive as, as collaboratively. We don't survive as individuals, and the species hasn't survived as individuals. Yeah, right. We survive because we collaborate. So actually, we invest quite a lot in someone saying, uh, yeah, you know, getting on with us and approving of what we do and, and wanting to be our friends and wanting to hang out with us. Because fundamentally, from an evolutionary point of view, we would have died if we hadn't had friends. Mm. Yeah, so, absolutely. I so, suppose it's pretty deep-seated. That yeah, it is. It's, I think it goes right. I think it has a very, very strong evolutionary basis. But that doesn't mean it can't be overridden and that people don't have differences. But yeah. Self-important middle class, deluded straight white men, leading on and on and on and on and on and on and on about inconsequential arty shite again. And you, you cut me off when I was going to tell these these eight, these um, experiments for the eighties, and I'm I'm determined to get them in because they back to we've come back round to a place where I can shoehorn them back in again. Good. But they were they are it's just really exciting evidence, and this is old evidence. There've been loads of studies since, but they're just some of the first studies that showed how much is going on at an unconscious level and how capable we are from a really young age of doing that. So there's there's been a couple of studies where they've done this, but one example is that they they it's a computerized task. You have four sort of quadrants on the on the screen and you every now and again a number let's say number five will flash in one one quadrant or another and loads of other numbers around and what you have to do is predict each time the screen comes up you have to predict where that number five is going to be so you just have to point and they do this through a really complex mathematical algorithm really complex um and people pick it up really quickly but when you ask them how they do it, they've literally got no idea, absolutely none. And if you actually get mathematicians to work out the algorithm, they can do it, but it takes an awfully long time and it doesn't predict how good they are at actually doing the task. And they've found even preschool kids can do this task. Because it's a pattern, but you can't work out what You the don't know what is. it is. Right. So the point is that we process a huge amount of stuff at an unconscious level without being even remotely aware that we're doing it. Mm. And that going back to this thing of what's going on with the creative process we can kind of access what's happening when we're dreaming we can recognize stuff that happens with our default mode network but there's a whole load of other shit that's going on that we can't get anywhere near mm. and that to me is the holy grail that's what i'd love to know what's going on that but feels how like, do we get there that feels like the, the essence of what we're after isn't it yeah. really that that kind of what you know where, where does it come from what are the chances of ever being able to get to it we're, we're circling around my second question now. <laughs> <laughs> Is your hand going to go up in a minute? Yeah. Uh, uh, I, I think we could. We could get there. But I think because the, there are lots of ways of sort of measuring the output of unconscious processes. So we might not be able to measure unconscious processes themselves, but we can measure the output. We can look at when someone is being influenced by their unconsciousness. And if we can do that and we can measure brain activity then we can probably get closer to it. But I don't think we'll really pin down. If you, if I was to kind of give you the brick study and then send you off into a room and put you in a scanner and look at what's going on, I don't think I'm really going to get the the kind of um, unconscious. I don't, yeah, I think we're still a long way away from it is the short answer there. I'm just sort of trying to give Sai a chance to 
come up with this question now. No, I've, I'm, my question is what well, it's about creativity in science because mm-hmm. we've t- been talking about it all in the sort of like artsy fartsy way that we tend to, it being about design and music and all the things that we think of as creative disciplines. But I mean, science feels to me like there are there are leaps in it which are the same thing. Yeah, they're because they're connections. They're mm. they're like fucking. Oh, why didn't I think of that sort mm. of things? Where mm. there's there, where people have come across stuff or made connections that are real either discoveries or they're sort of uh, I don't know explaining something that's already there like evolution is anyone could have eventually didn't have to be Darwin someone would have figured that out yeah he did it earlier than well him and Wallace or whoever it was Mm. but there's you know there's joining loads of dots together that that kind of creativity I think which is Mm. which is extraordinary and then there's other stuff like Hawking which is I, I don't even know if I don't understand it enough to be able to tell but there's you know, there's creativity in that, which is leaps that other people can't even make. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's such a false dichotomy that art science thing is is ridiculous because there is there's no question that as a scientist, I am having to think creatively all the time. And there's also no question that it doesn't vary hugely between you know, even if I think about my um, colleagues, some will are far more creative than others and some are more the kind of doers who will be able to to kind of work their way through the stages or yeah. the, the people who will go that's a good idea or that's a bad idea mm. but absolutely false dichotomy i it, science is hugely um creative um and i feel like all the time and this is the thing about going for the run all the time like oh that would be a great hypothesis to test that would be a great way to do it and it's it's relentlessly creative and that's what i love about it my friend who uh, he writes for TV, he's been in loads of writers' rooms and things like mm. that. He talks about them as what-if rooms. Mm. You know, everyone's in there talking about a plot. What if, what if, what if? Mm. And that feels like science to me. Yeah. That is the... That, it is. That, yeah, but what if? You know, we've got to try that out. We, we've got to test it. And I, and I think that actually everybody is a scientist in the same way that everyone's an artist and a creative because um, we all hypothesis test all the time. If anyone who's had young children is continually, why did they wake up last night? Was it was it the porridge I gave Let's them? Should I be that, given? Yeah. And guess what you're doing? You're continually sort of trialing hypotheses and and coming up with what ifs. What if that's what caused that? What if that's what's caused that? And yeah, and I I think that that creativity is a hugely important part of being a human and any discipline that we're involved in. Yeah. There's a great um, Asimov quote, who obviously was famous for his science fiction, but he was, also, he was quite a scientist. And he, I remember him saying about the, the most exciting phrase in science is not the, the eureka stuff, but it's like, oh, that's funny. Why is yeah, that? Yeah, that yeah, yeah, that yeah. is so, it's so exactly it. But I feel like, I don't know about you, but I feel like I'm slightly crowded by those feelings all the time. My problem is actually trying to rein some of that stuff in because right. I feel like that about everything. That well, it's happens. so easy. That's the trouble with it. It's so easy to get distracted by everything because you, yeah. you can't possibly understand all the things around you. So you have to focus on, you have to narrow it down into yeah. this is what I'm going to be curious about. Yeah. Because otherwise, it, we just never get anything done, would we? <laughs> You'd be like, why, why does anything work? <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, a, it's, you know, I, I suppose there's, that's why we specialise. And you've you've specialised to such a, a degree that you're into how bits of the brain work or how functions of the brain are mm, working or, mm. or why they're working or why they don't work, I suppose, mm, more so in your mm. case. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, both, yeah. In your everyday life, are you concerned much with creativity in the brain or is it much more about the 
you know, the more my, what you might call vital functions, I suppose. So my real focus is on memory, is on human memory and our ability to, and I particularly the aspect of memory that allows us to reflect back on on what we did and what it felt like and what our life story is and yeah. to be able to access different parts of that memory. That seems completely related to creativity to me. Yeah, so, I, so the point I suppose I was going to make is that yes, uh, in the sense that every single time you remember you are recreating something. So this idea that you're just looking back and watching yeah. a video of something that happened is absolutely wrong. Yes. Every single remembering, recollective episode is a reconstruction from the building blocks of what happened before, which is why every time you remember it, it will be slightly different. And every time you tell a story, it will be slightly different. Isn't that, that that thing that you can only remember something once and after that you're remembering the memory? Yeah, you, but that, every single one is a reconstruction. So you're kind of, the, I don't even think you're remembering the memory. I think you are reconstructing anew and each reconstruction is shaped by the last reconstruction. So every <laughs> single construction is shaped by the reconstruction before, which in itself is shaped by everything that was happening at that time. And so, so we will remember something, we will remember it differently according to the conditions we're in so I can look back on something that happened to me when I was 15 and it will look different to to me now because I've got all this additional stuff that helps me reconstruct it in a different way yeah you're looking at it through the prism of being so much older and all the experience you've had in the meantime that feels like a very creative process doesn't it That's it is it's continuing and and also the, in terms of the brain the parts of the brain we used to remember are exactly the same parts of the brain we used to imagine the future so memory Remembering and imagining are literally the, the same, same networks. Thing. Does that also mean that if you think about a memory a lot, the more you think about it, the less true it is? Because you've kind yeah, of embellished it to such an extent that it's, it's now completely fiction. So in memory research, we don't really, in this type of memory research, we don't really think about true and not true because our, you know, where the, knowing where you live, it's important. The truth is important, right? Yeah. It needs to be right. Yeah. But knowing what happened to you, what the research shows is it's much more important that it's consistent with your life goals and with who you are and with what you're doing in your life now than that it's absolutely true. Right. So the concept of truth is not an important one for us, what largely. Ab what about if you're looking Unless at... Unless like, you're an eyewitness. Yes, yeah, exactly. Maybe that's what I'm saying. If you're, if you're after an eyewitness testimony of some, some, a crime or something, yeah. then those kind of... Because those are famously inaccurate and absolutely our memories are, our memories are rubbish in a lot of ways they're fantastic in that they provide us with this amazing kind of ability to recreate and reconstruct and relive something that happened before but the accuracy level is is rubbish mm. <laughs> it's shocking it's strange as a scientist to hear you say that that we're not really interested in the truth you know it's kind of <laughs> yeah. it's like this idea of empirical, yeah, yeah, te yes. empirical testing yeah, and yeah. Uh, you know knowledge can only come from sensory experience yeah, yeah. uh it, uh, yeah, it's something that I had to learn. I really did have to learn this because when you test, if I test, if I give you a list of words to learn and I test your ability to remember that list, I do, accuracy matters. But if I say to you, tell me what happened when you were 15, I don't really care how right it is. I, I care about whether you can do that and what the memory looks like and how you feel about that memory and so on. The accuracy of it is completely irrelevant to me as a scientist in that context. It's also impossible for you to verify. Exactly. Yeah. Although there have been lots of attempts to try and do stuff that can be verified. People who've got, um, you know, uh, diaries and all sorts of things. So people have tried to do that. And they fundamentally come to the conclusion that unless it's eyewitness testimony, largely it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. 
And there's a lot of collaborative remembering, remembering that goes on. So the thing with eyewitness testimony is you have to catch somebody literally immediately. And every single day that goes past and every single conversation they have is exactly like, so, um, you know, uh, any evidence is it's being corrupted in the same way that we should put, you know, gloves on to touch the evidence. We need to do that with memories, which is just not touch them. Don't go there. Right. So the, the, if once you've asked them, you've, kind of corrupted it you need to wait until they're in court yeah so so some of some of my colleagues here are doing stuff like trying to ensure that that people are doing that recollection literally as soon as they possibly can and they're asked to be in sketch things and do with as little intervention as possible every single question you ask every single intervention you make will then shape how it's remembered again when you ask them in a you know a day's time yeah. or something because we are so good at being creative and constructing this imagined experience and reliving It does feel like it's part of the human condition. Yeah. And it's the, you know, the creative industries, if you like, have sort of hijacked it into, um, in, a, in a way to sort of harness it for their own purposes. But there's, as you say, there's, there are so many things that we do, all of us do all the time, which are, if you don't have that ability, mm. there's from brain damage or something like that, then it's, it's really quite clear and, you know, you can't function properly as a human because yeah. you need to do all that testing and... And interesting, it's a really crucial part of uh, quite a lot of therapies because things like um, CBT and uh, cognitive behavioural therapy and other therapies depend on you being able to create alternative futures and alternative pasts. Mm. So one of the things that happens when people are very anxious is that they are worried about one future happening and they get caught up in that is the thing that's going to happen. Yes. And actually, this the key to not having that is to be creative, is to come up as many different imagined futures as you can, some of which will be good and some of which will be bad, but all of which give you a sense that that's not the only thing that could happen. So, so simply getting people to generate 20 different things that could happen when I leave this building instead of the one that means I bump into the person that I don't want to see. You really don't want to see that person, do you? Who's <laughs> <laughs> <Is> this person? <laughs> what have they done? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I want, to, I want to know about that story. Yeah. It's like, it's like a bit more interesting. <laughs> do you know what's really awful is I stole the example from somebody else, so I don't even have my own story there. I was, a, I was a, literally a theft of someone else's. Well, as we've already established, that's fine, though, creatively. <laughs> And that is another cracking comment. These boys are at the top of their game. I had a question around your research, I suppose, and creativity as well. Mm. As our brains age, mm. Um, mm. and I really love some incredible, incredibly sort of uh, emotional, heartwarming stories about people who've, uh, you know, elderly people um, with Alzheimer's, mm. who, when you play them a song yeah. from when they were 13, their brains light up, yeah. you know, and suddenly, suddenly there's, suddenly there's activity in a, in yeah. a way that it hasn't been before, and some loads of really gorgeous stuff there. Mm. Um, does that point to um, our creative brains sort of retaining the creativity uh, into old age? Re you know, are there, are there are there brain functions that go first? Uh, do, do you think there's like uh, imagination and you know, do you think those sort of remain? I do think those things remain. I would argue that in some ways they maybe even get stronger. I don't I don't know that the listening to music is necessarily an example of that. I think um, 
listening to music is and getting that reaction is a sign that music can connect with those memories in a way that other things can't um and that that's been fairly well established now that that musical memories are more long-standing that they're stored slightly differently in the brain and so on but if we go back to the frontal lobes again one of the things the frontal lobes are the last thing to develop in life and they're also the first thing to start to deteriorate as we get older so in a way as we get older you've got less control less inhibition and that's why older people are more likely to kind of be a bit frank and say what they they want and a bit more disinhibited and a bit and they also find it harder to plan and to judge things and all the rest of it but arguably that also means that they're sort of slightly freer to come up with um uh, you know different combinations of things and to be more creative i think there is a, a slightly possibly dark side to this that when we sleep we have these very weird connections and collaborations between different things that make no sense and and I've already argued that that's that's a creative thing. When we're asleep and when we wake up, those those kind of feelings disappear, and we kind of go, oh, "That was a dream." One of the things that happens, I think, in Alzheimer's is that you have less control of your memory, and what memories you have got become recombined in really quite unusual ways. So people start to have more psychotic type experiences. So I think, and that and it's not the only condition where that happens. And again, the default mode network is quite disrupted in in Alzheimer's as well as schizophrenia and depression and various other things. So again, it comes down to that, and it it functions differently. So it's functioning inappropriately, effectively. So yeah. creativity is brilliant, but actually misplaced creativity can cause all sorts of problems. I mean, that's all paranoia is in yeah. in a psychosis. Yeah, right. Is, is creativity that's got people that make connections between things. Wild. It is. It's connections between things that shouldn't be there. It's it's. Um... Do, you, do you reckon we could draw a conclusion from this though that the <laughs> heaven, heaven forbid, <laughs> heaven forbid, there's a conclusion that um, that memory and creativity are based. They're so linked. They're inextricable. You can't be creative without memory. Yeah. You, you can't hold. You know, apart from anything else, you wouldn't be able to remember what it was you were trying to do. You can't make abstract associations if you can't remember what anything. You need building blocks. I mean, in, yeah, in exactly. a sense, That's the memory what... is the building blocks. So you can't build something if you've got no building blocks. And would it also be true? This is uh, this um, this is me trying to end on a hopeful note. Yeah. Would it also be true that as you get older, you're you you've got you have more memories, you have yeah. more access to more more building blocks. Yeah. So. It sounds like there's a strong possibility that you could become more creative. Not only would you retain it, but it's going to get better as you get older. I think that's, I really think that's very likely true. And also we tend to chuck away the building blocks that we didn't like. So we're more likely to be able to create kind of good and nice things. Um, so I think in healthy sort of normal aging, I absolutely think people can become more creative and People often do rediscover creative things that they because because you lose that inhibition and also you have more time. When you look at what you need to be creative, there's a whole set of things, but one of them is time, right? Definitely. But all of those things, I mean, I think it it goes if we go right back to the very beginning of our conversation where you were saying which part of the brain is creativity and oh, it's not because it's all of these things. I think it's all of these things and more because the the set of circumstances that you need in order to be creative are about the building blocks. They are about the time. They are about not being stressed and having other stuff that's getting in the way. They are about allowing your default mode network to flow. And actually, they are about having enough hours of sleep. 
and having the right personality and having been encouraged in life and not feeling like it matters if you make mistakes. There's a whole set of things that need to happen that can all be identified in the brain as being the the, the kind of magic set of things that needs to be there for you to be able to produce sort of good creative output. Yeah. Well, that sounds quite simple. Off we go. <laughs> cue, cue the outro. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, that was brilliant. Yeah, lovely. You're brilliant. You've wrapped that up perfectly. <laughs> Thank you, Kat. That's great. <laughs> You've provided a... Professional a... experience of <laughs> having sort of stood in loads of lectures and thinking, fuck, I'm... How do I get out? Where am I, where am I going with this? <laughs> That was, that was definitely going. the most meandering podcast I've ever done in my life, but I quite like it for that reason. That's, great. So. Good. That's what Good. it's supposed to be. So that was our chat with Catherine. Um, thank you, Catherine. Thank you for tolerating us. Thank you for uh, thank you for accommodating our general naivety. Yeah, uh, it was lovely, and we got to we went up to Westminster to meet her. So. Um, Got to mooch around in a lovely university, which is unusual in these COVID times. Yeah, it's true. I love universities. Oh, I, I occasionally they? go into universities to do a bit of workshoppy stuff. Mm. And I always think, oh my God, I could live in a university. I do like a good campus. Love a campus. <laughs> <laughs> those books, all those brilliant minds. Um, so <laughs> the, the lovely University of Westminster is at, you can find that, and Catherine's courses and more information about her and what she does there at westminster.ac.uk you I, saying ac yeah not .ac.uk there you go you've done it both ways now okay that's that covered you can find Kath herself at Kath Loveday on Twitter I think she's on Insta as well but I think that's more personal stuff yeah and I, she's she's written a, she's written a book she's written several books I've got one of them it's called no I can't remember it's The got, Secret World of the Brain something like that yeah is that what it's called it is. Oh, splendid. Uh, yeah, it's big and yellow, that much I remember. Mm. Uh, yeah, it's really good. It's it's one of those, it, it, it feels like it's a sort of educational primer sort of thing. So it touches on lots and lots of subjects, uh, but not in great detail. And uh, I think she's also written stuff that is more detailed about her, but specific area of research. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, Google her. There's loads of stuff. Yeah, definitely. She's great. You're great, Catherine. Thanks, for, um, thanks so much for having us. Uh, anyway, yes. So that's it, a slightly different one for this week. Um, I don't think we'll have another brain scientist on. So that could be the last of the science for a little while. <laughs> I don't know. I, um, I think one of the things that came up towards the end of our chat with Catherine was how science and art aren't so massively different. How, how there's this kind of... Oh, thing. absolutely. I mean, this is a, but I, this I is a I different conversation. Well, though, of course, it? yeah. But, but I, I, you know, my, my, my feeling is that Catherine's scientific endeavours are, you know, on a creative par with... Yeah, most with, good with, science. With, 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 with anything that's yes. uh, that conventional, uh, you know, your conventional, in inverted commas, uh, creative person is... Absolutely. Is, is I, think, I think anyone who's been through the educational system and come out the other end of it and is now a... A research scientist is a creative. They are they are testing ideas. That's the that's what they're doing. That's what they're there for. Yeah, definitely. I feel like Catherine as it, while you know while we might say, oh, this is this is a different different chat, and it is a different chat. It's but very at the same time, yeah. it's all in the mix. Son. It's all it's all it's all in the same soup. It's all in the same creative soup. Oh, I can see it swimming around. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> brain. <laughs> brain soup. Brain soup. Yeah, delicious brain soup. Anyway, uh, so thanks again to Catherine. And we'll be back next time for another conversation with another, another creative. creative. Sorry, I've joined in ruined it. That's fine.